We're going to talk, uh, the God question for today is called, what happens when I die? Not if I die, but what happens when I die? Because unless you are Mo, unless you're Elijah, unless you're Enoch, and those are two people in the Bible that actually did not physically die, they were pulled up and, and taken off this earth by God in heaven. Elijah goes up in a chariot of fire, and that's where they came up with that movie title, dun, 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 dun. that chariot of fire. That's Elijah going up, you know, to, to be with the Lord, and then Enoch was walking with God, and then he wasn't. Yeah, I think you can read that in uh, early Genesis. Uh, great stories there, but uh, for the, most of the rest of us, prior to the return of Jesus Christ, if we come to a certain point in our lives, we are going to physically die. And of course, then the question is, because all humanity has been asking this question, not just in our generation and not just in our uh, America, but in all countries, all languages, all cultures, all time periods, I think everybody looks around and says, I see that human beings are born and they live for a while. Some live for a short period of time. Some people die in middle age. Some people live to a long period of time. I mean, look at Lil Ogden. She's still walking the earth and she's 100 years old. So a lot of people live a long time, but at some point, unless Jesus comes back first, even someone like Lil Ogden is going to pass away and go to wherever she goes. And so the real question is, what happens when I die. Not if, but when I die. Speaking of that, there was a golfer, and he was out on the golf course, and he loves to play golf. So he goes out there, and you know how, you know how people connect with God in different ways? Like some people say, well, I connect with God in music and worship. And other people say, well, I connect with God by reading his word and studying the Bible. And other people connect with God. I really connect with God as I'm out there serving and helping other people. I know our, our in-law, Artie Vangaloof, I mean, that's his life. He, he helps other people, and that's how he gets closer to God. He serves God by serving people, and it's a wonderful trait. Uh, but this guy, he would be out on the golf course, and he would look around at all this beauty and creation, and he would actually say, wow, this, this golf course is declaring the glory of God. So he looks up, and he's like, God, I'm so thankful. This is going to be awesome. And he says, you know, it's a bummer if I would have to give up golf here on earth when I die. It, like, when I die and I go to heaven, does that mean I'm going to have to give up golf? Golf, God, is there any golf in heaven? That's a long way to get to that question. <laughs> God, is there any golf? All I have in here in my notes is, is God, is there any golf in heaven? <clears throat> That's typical Jim. Okay, so God, is there, is there going to be any golf in heaven? And God replies to him, and he's like, oh, a voice comes out of heaven. He's like, this is amazing. And, and the reply from heaven says, yes, there will be golf in heaven. I have some good news and some bad news. And the, and the golfer gets so excited that he hears back from God. He says, all right, God, give me the good news. And he says, not only will there be golf in heaven, but the courses up here, they far outshine Augusta, Pebble Beach, St. Andrews. The golf courses up here are going to be amazing. And the guy gets so excited. And he says, God, that's wonderful news. And then he says, all right, fine. What's the bad news? And God says, you have a tea time this Saturday. Whoa! <laughs> so when asked the question, by the way, most Americans, they believe in some sort of afterlife. They believe that there's some kind of life after death, after we physically die. The question is, what does that kind of life look like? Is there such a place as heaven or hell? And what are the details? 
Well, it might surprise you if you look in the Bible. The Bible talks about heaven or a place in the afterlife over 500 times. Heaven and hell are talked about because almost every human being wonders, after we die, what's on the other side? What's on the other side of death? What happens to us? And it's kind of important because I was just reading this, these st statistics and with over 7 billion people, human beings on here on planet Earth, here's the facts about death. Three people on planet Earth die every second. 11,000 people die every hour. In this long service so far, there's over 8,000 people who have already died here on planet Earth since we started this service. So we know... We know about death. We know it's coming for everybody. We know that the, in death, the physical body stops functioning. But here's the question. Is there more to a person than just their physical body? Do they have what religions call a spirit? Do people have what, what a lot of faiths call a soul? Life after death, it's a fundamental belief in most religions. Uh, most people believe there is some kind of life after death. Now, I want you to go to the next slide because I want to show you what the major religions of the world believe. Now, you're not going to get a lot of information out there, but I'm just giving you the gist of it. The first two major religions are the Buddhists and Hindus, and they both believe in this idea of birth and life and rebirth. You know, you're born, you die, you come back as some other living kind of a creature. They say if you lived really well, you'll come back as a higher level human being. If you lived a pretty bad life, you might come back as some kind of an animal. And that's why you don't want to step on a frog when you're walking in the park because it might be your Uncle Charlie. You know, that's what I used to say when I was a teenager because kind of making fun of it. But there are a lot of people on this planet that believe in this idea that you're born and you die and you're just reborn and you die and reborn and re-die. And the whole idea is to get off this circle of life and death and life and death and pain and get to this place called nirvana where you, like a drop of water, now are dropped into the ocean and you individually cease to exist. And that's what nirvana is. You just become like one with the universe. And I don't like the idea of going out of existence. So it's like you go out of, you go out of individual existence and you just go into the, the universe of, of uh, Brahman. So that's Buddhists and Hindus. Muslims, Jews, and Christians, they all believe in life after death. In fact, they all believe that there is a judgment that is coming after this life. Muslims believe in a final judgment. Muslims believe that only good Muslims who have lived a godly life pleasing to Allah, they're the only ones that are going to go to paradise. And by the way, it's not called heaven, it's called paradise. And the, the, the presence of God, of Allah, of Allah himself, Allah is, too, is so great and holy and other that they don't actually spend time with Allah. They're just sort of in a nice place called paradise. That's for Muslims. Now, if you're not a good Muslim, if you're not a Muslim, you don't have a chance of going to paradise. And uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later. Jews, Jews have a term uh, where they say that when someone, uh, a Jewish person dies, they are, quote, gathered to our fathers, gathered to our ancestors. But at the end of time, there will be a final resurrection of all human beings, and there will be a final judgment. Now, you remember that Martha responded to Jesus that way, right? When, Mar when uh, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, right? That, that passage in John 11, 
she said she walked up to him kind of upset that Jesus wasn't there when her brother Lazarus died. And she said, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, well, he will rise at the last day. And she says, yeah, I know, at the resurrection and the final, that when everybody's raised from the dead over a lot of, long period of time, he'll be raised too. So they do believe in this, in a final resurrection and a final judgment. And so do Christians. So do Christians. There's a final judgment after this life. And all human beings, whether they follow Jesus or not, they will all be raised from the dead to face a final judgment. In fact, it says that in Hebrews chapter 9. It says, for once it is appointed for man to die. So the author of Hebrews says, man is appointed to die just one time, and after that comes the judgment. So there's the answer to the Buddhist and the Hindu question. Like, well, do you just like born and die and born and die? No, the Bible says we are born once as human beings, and after we die, then we go to face the judgment before God. So the, the thing about it is, why I shared all that with you, is all these religions have differing beliefs of the details of what happens to human beings after they die, but most every world religion believes there's some kind of life after death, that we don't just go out of existence. Uh, that's the good news. Now, the question is, which one of these religions, because they all teach slightly different things, which one of them is right or wrong, or are they all right, or they all have a little portion of the truth, like a lot of people say, which one of them would be the most correct? Well, how do you know which one of them to believe? And what I would say is I would rather trust somebody who has already died, who's already been resurrected, who's already come back from the dead, and been seen by over 500 people when he walked the earth after he was resurrected, I would rather trust somebody like that who's already been to the other side and come back to tell us what that is like than anybody else. And that's Jesus himself. So Jesus, the resurrected one. Now, before he died, he did a lot of teaching, right? Jesus is known for being the great rabbi, the great teacher. In fact, Mary Magdalene called him Rabboni, my great teacher, my personal great teacher. So Jesus, as a great teacher, he is telling these stories. Some, sometimes they're called parables. And in one of the stories, Jesus is actually going to tell us about two men who lived and who died, and then they face the afterlife, and then we actually see a glimpse of what happens to them on the other side of death. So that's pretty fascinating to me. I hope you're interested in the story. If you have your Bibles, you want to check it out yourself, go to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 16. You can read it for yourself, or you can follow along uh, here up on the screen. So here we are. Jesus is doing the talking here. He says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine, livin fine linen. That means he had fancy clothes. And he lived in luxury every day. So Jesus just starts talking, uh, introduces a story talking about this incredibly wealthy man. He was living the high life. He lived in a wealthy estate. He wore the finest clothes. He ate the finest foods, and he lived a very privileged life. That's back in the first century, very, very few people lived a life like this. So Jesus is now making, he's going to make a contrast between one guy and his standard of living and this other guy. So he tells us about the rich man first, and then he says, and not very far away from this really wealthy guy, there's another guy. And just outside the gates of this rich man's estate was a second man, 
this incredibly economically challenged man named Lazarus. And in verse 20 to 21, it says this. It says, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. By the way, Lazarus means God has comforted, right? Well, I hope God has comforted him because this rich guy certainly didn't do anything to help comfort him, as you're going to see in the story. Lazarus. So this beggar named Lazarus, he's covered with sores. He's longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, even the crumbs that fell off the table. This guy must be starving to death. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So in the same town, in the same neighborhood of this extremely wealthy man, there's an extremely poor guy. He had nothing. He was slowly starving to death. And so he'd lay outside the gate hoping and praying that maybe somebody from the rich man's estate would come and bring him some of the food or some of the crumbs that even fell off the table just so he could stay alive. And this man was so poor, he had no health care at all. He had no chance to see a doctor. His body was just sort of wasting away and decaying. And the pariah dogs, the, the, the dogs in the city, they'd just come around and start licking his wounds and his sores. I mean, it's a terrible picture of suffering here in this life. So remember, now, the listeners say, okay, you got this really wealthy guy. And, of course, in the Jewish mindset, really wealthy man means God has blessed him because God blesses you with, with physical wealth in the old covenant, in the Jewish uh, covenant with Moses. And then you got this poor guy, which probably means he's being cursed by God. And so Jesus, whenever he tells one of these stories, he almost always includes what you call the unexpected twist, right? Which means like Jesus is going this way and all of a sudden, whoop, whoop, not going to turn out the way you thought it was. And so here we go. It says, the time came, verse 22, when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, Abraham's side was a euphemism in the Jewish uh, culture, and that means in paradise, in God's presence, you know, where you're blessed by Abraham's side. So the, the beggar dies. He goes to a great place. He says the rich man also died, and he was buried. So here, here's one of our first observations. Even with all this man's wealth and money and influence, the rich man could not evade death. You know, you've heard, I remember the bumper sticker when I was growing up. He who dies with the most toys wins. And I say, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And then what happens? Because you can't put a U-Haul on the back of a hearse. It just doesn't work. You cannot take it with you. All that man's wealth and possessions didn't do him a bit of good on the other side of death. So they both die. They're both buried. They both must face what awaits them on the other side. The, cynic, the cynical observer turns out to be right after all. There are no sure things except death and taxes. So... Remember, back to the original question. What was the God question? What happens after you die, right? What happens? What's on the other side? And according to this story that Jesus tells us, there are at least three realities, three things that happen after death. The first reality is this. You will be wide awake. You will be fully conscious after you die, after you leave this life here on earth. You don't go into soul sleep. You don't go into, uh, well, you just go out of existence because all those electrons that are buzzing around that are making you, you, the, the, the people that are naturalistic evolutionists that only believe you're alive because of, you know, th because of this, when you die, you die and that's it and you go out of existence. It's just fade to black. 
That's what people believe. But according to Jesus, that's not what happens. You will be wide awake and conscious after you die. Secondly, right after you die, you will be filled with either one of two things. There's no neutral here that's mentioned. You're either going to be filled with tremendous gratitude or you're going to be filled with enormous regret. Enormous regret. And then the third thing, the third reality that will happen after you die is you'll be able to reflect on your life. This is one of those things. Now, after the judgment, and, and according to Christian theology, after the final judgment, after the, the judgment seat of Christ for Christians and all this stuff where rewards are given out, after all that takes place, Jesus talks about a time where the new heaven and the new earth comes in and there'll be no more crying or tears or pain or anything like that. But in the meantime, before that happens, he says you will ref you'll be able to reflect on your life here on earth, at least the life that you lived, with crystal clarity. And you're going to see that in the story. So let's go over this point by point. The first point is you'll be wide awake. In this parable, both the rich man and Lazarus died. They woke up on the other side, and it was immediate. There was no delay, right? Do you remember uh, Jesus uh, and the story with him of the dying thief on the cross, right? So Jesus is up on Golgotha, the place of the skull outside of Jerusalem, where he was sentenced to death by the Roman governor Pilate. Jesus is being crucified in the middle. There's a thief on one side and a thief on the other. The one thief is making fun of Jesus, and the other thief basically tells the other guy to shut up because he's, he's mocking Jesus. And he says, he says, quit talking about him that way. And then he says, he says, Jesus, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus said to him in reply? He said, today. Now, today, not tomorrow, not in the resurrection, not after a long soul sleep, not after you've gone through thousands of years of purgatory, paying for all your sins. He says, today you will be with me in paradise, right? What a great promise that is. So when you and I die, we will, our spirit that, in, that animates our body, our soul, our spirit, that will go immediately over to the other side. So there's no jet lag, there's no time delay, there's no immediate intermediate state. The Bible does not teach about anything about limbo or purgatory. It's just not taught anywhere in the Bible. So after you die, you'll be wide awake. Second, the second thing, and this is something I, I want to diesel on number two and number three. The second reality is after you die, you will be filled with either tremendous gratitude or enormous regret. There was a stunning reversal. This was the unexpected twist in the story. The Jews expected the rich man dies. Oh, he goes to heaven because he's obviously being best blessed by God. The poor man dies. Well, he obviously goes to Sheol because, you know, he was being cursed by God and that's why he was poor. And in the stunning reversal, the two, the rich doesn't go to paradise. The rich man doesn't go to paradise. The poor man doesn't go to Sheol. He goes over to Abraham's side. So there's this amazing turnaround. And look what happened to the used to be rich man. Now he's the new poor man. So it's like now on the other side of, the de of death, he's, he's not even called the rich man anymore. He's just this man. He says in Hades or in, the, in hell in some of the translations where he, the ex-rich man, was in torment, he looked up. So wherever he is, he's wide awake, he's conscious, he's looking up and he's able to see around him and he sees far away across a chasm, according to this story, there's Lazarus 
The guy that, that was the beggar dude that was outside his door, the guy that everybody thought was cursed by God, he's over at Abraham's side, and instead of being over there, the rich, ex-rich man finds himself over here, and he is in torment, right? So he calls over to Abraham. Apparently, his voice still works. They can still communicate, and he calls him. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus. To do what? Lazarus, well, to come over here and trade places? No. He, doesn't, he, he knows better than to even ask that. So he says, I, I guess I, I realize I'm stuck in this place. This is part of, this is what I deserve or, or I'm getting my justice for whatever happened. So he says, Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to even dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. That is not a place, that is not a pleasant place to be. That imagery is suffering and torment and, and especially regret for the idea that did he really have to end up in this place in the first place. Though, now, before you draw the wrong conclusion, I want to point out something. That all the wealth, all the wealth this guy had while he was living here on earth, that was not his problem. That was not the reason why he was now in a place of torment. Some people will, will teach that and even think Jesus is teaching that. Now, if you're rich now, you're going to be poor then. If you're poor now, great, you're going to be rich then. It doesn't have to do with your physical, uh, financial wealth here on earth. And you know why I know that? Because who did he ask to send Lazarus over, right? He says, Father Abraham. Do you, do you have any recollection what Abraham's economic status was when he was living here on earth? He was pretty well off, right? He had a lot of servants. He had a lot of cattle, sheep, and livestock, and all that kind of stuff. He even said at one time, my estate, I don't have any kids, God. Right now, my estate's going to go to Eliezer of Damascus. So he had a big estate, and yet he was godly, and he was God-honoring. He was blessed by God, and he ended up in paradise to welcome Lazarus when Lazarus came to join him. The guy's problem wasn't his wealth while he was here on earth. The guy's problem was that he never responded to God who gave him life and gave him his wealth. He never responded to the purposes that God had for his life. The, the main two commands of God are to love God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he, whatever he did in his relationship with God, he certainly broke the second commandment because he didn't do anything to help Lazarus. He certainly did not help his neighbor and love him as himself. He never thought of anybody but himself, including God. He never took advantage of spiritual opportunities when they came his way. He resisted the will and the influence of God his entire life. So friends, what I'm saying to you from this story that Jesus tells us, depending on where you wake up in, the, in eternity, you're either going to be in one or two places, and you're either going to be filled with tremendous gratitude. God, I can't believe I made it. <laughs> this is awesome. Because of my faith in Christ, not because of my own righteousness, but the Bible says, Jesus, or Paul says in his writings in Philippians, he says, I, I'm not getting right with God because of my own righteousness. I'm getting right with God because the righteousness of Christ is being credited to me by faith. That's how I'm getting into heaven. I hope that's the way you're getting in too because that's what the New Testament clearly teaches. So this man was not open to the activity of God and Jesus in his life. And by the way, 
here's a real key here. This is the only passage. You, you say, well, are there any other stories in the Bible where they talk about people that have died and they're coming back and they tell us what's on the other side other than Jesus himself after he rose from the dead? Or any other stories, any other passages? The answer is no. There's, this is the only passage in the Bible that gives us the thoughts and the emotions and the words of a person who is now separated from God in Hades, in hell. This is the only story, so we need to take it very seriously. The rich man says, why do I need Lazarus to come cool my tongue? Because I am in agony in this fire. Right after he died, this rich man, who was never responsive to God's activity in his life, he is filled with enormous regret. Why? There's no going back now. His eternity is sealed. It is irreversible. You know, I think there's this, there's this wish theology that's out there in Christendom. I have it sometimes where I say, you know what, God, here's what I wish. You know, if it's possible to pray for somebody after they died, to pray them into Christ's forgiveness, to pray them into putting their faith in Jesus, God, please let them have a second chance or another chance to hear the message on the other side of the death. Because right now, from what I know of their life and I know of their conversations, they, didn't, they did not put their trust in Jesus, this side of heaven. And, and I'm grieved for them and I'm concerned about them. God, I want them to go to heaven. Can I pray them in? And, I, and there's even religions that try to do that. According to the Christian theology that we read in the New Testament, we are not able to do that. You can pray all you want, but it doesn't say it's going to do any good. Because according to this passage and other passages, his eternity is sealed and it's irreversible. Because look what Abraham says to the rich man, or to the, I keep saying to the rich man. He ain't rich no more. To this ex-rich guy who's now in torment. He says in verse 26, he says, between us and you, there's a great chasm that's been set in place so that those, in other words, where Abraham and Lazarus are on, in paradise, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So his eternity is sealed. It's irreversible. There's no reversals. There's a finality about what happens after you die. And for anybody who ends up in hell, there, there's going to be this enormous regret I can't imagine the amount of regret. Over, regret over what? Regret over the missed opportunities they had in life to respond to God, to seek God, to get right with God, to embrace God's grace given to them in Jesus. They, they did not respond to that, and they're, they're, they're going to regret that forever. Now, on the other hand, for those who are going to heaven, for those who did respond to God's amazing grace... The experience right after they die, it's not going to be enormous regret. It's going to be tremendous gratitude. It's going to be like, oh, God, thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace at work in our, in, in our life. Now, let me pause here because there's, there's lots of questions that people have about death and the afterlife. Like, like if, we're, if this physical body that we're living in right now, when, it, when it's laid to rest and it dies, what happens after that, Right? Will, will we have any new bodies in heaven or are we just going to be like Casper the ghost? You know, these phantasm things that are just kind of floating around but we don't have any physical bodies. The Bible says very clearly that we are going to have physical bodies in heaven and they will be, here's the good news, they will be much improved. 
Now, if you're 25 and you're a bodybuilder, you're like, yeah, that's good. But if you're, you know, most like most of the rest of us who are past our, our physical prime, this is really good news. You know, there, this is a joke, so don't crucify me for this, please. But this is a joke, and there was a church. You don't want to say this one? All right, I won't say the joke. You can ask me afterward. Hey, what was that joke? And I'll tell you, too. That'll be good. Uh, after Jesus was resurrected. So after Jesus was resurrected, he came back in a physical body, right? But his physical body was different than his body was here on earth. His, he still had, and this is the amazing thing, and there's that one hymn that says, how am I going to recognize Jesus? I'm going to look for the man who has the scars in his hands and feet and has the, the wound in his side. And somehow Jesus is able to keep all of those scars that he had from his crucifixion in his resurrected body. But his resurrected body was different because the body that he was in could not be crucified and die anymore. The new body that Jesus had, he could go through doors without opening them. He was able to ascend into heaven right off the Mount of Olives and disappear in the clouds. As you can read about in Acts chapter 1, he could transcend time and space. When Jesus was resurrected, the new body that he was given was an immortal, incorruptible body. And the good news is, is according to the Apostle Paul, and you can read 1 Corinthians 15 to check it out for yourself, we're going to get the same kind of incorruptible, strong, never-get-sick-again body that Jesus has right now. I love what J.I. Packer said about our hope that we have as Christ followers for the future. He says, one day, God is going to do with the entire cosmos what he's already done with the resurrected Jesus. So the resurrected body Jesus has, just think how that spills out into the rest of, of earth and our new bodies and the universe and how he, behold, he's making all things new. That's going to be an amazing day. So for followers of Christ, our bodies are going to be changed. Now some of you, and, and it depends on the day for me, some of you, even right now in your own physical bodies, you live in physical pain every day. I want to tell you that the beauty, the hope that we have of heaven, heaven is going to be pain-free. It's going to be Advil-free. Heaven is going to be sciatica-free. Heaven is going to be fibromyalgia-free. It's going to be arthritis-free. You're going to have bodies that are quick and fit and perfect, able to hear and see, and how wonderful is that? Children that are, that are growing up now with special needs, they're going to be healthy and whole and able in both body and mind. Our loved ones, family members we may have that are on crutches or can't get around very well or in wheelchairs, they're, they're going to be able to run and leap and skip, and I can't wait to see that day. It's going to be a great day of joy. Friends, if some of you, if you're in great pain now, and it's not just physical pain, maybe the pain that you have is emotional or financial or relational, the kind of pain that's not visible, you need to hear these words about heaven and what heaven will be like. Because in the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus is making, Here's the reality. Here's what Jesus says in Revelation chapter 21. He says, slide 12, God himself will be with them and he will be their God. God himself will be with them. He will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. 
Reminds me of that song, no more crying there. We are going to see the king. That's right. We, no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things that you and I have to deal with now. The old order of things has passed away. What a great hope we have. Someday, the, those of us who live with emotional scars or nightmares or bad memories or heartbreaks or relational disappointments that sometimes overwhelm us here in, these li in this life right now, none of those scars and pain are going to be uh, the re new reality in heaven. There's going to be no more anxious waiting rooms, no more bloated stomachs of starvation. There'll be no more empty tissue boxes. There'll be no more tear-stained divorce papers. There'll be no more motionless ultrasounds or tiny caskets. And you know who in the Bible it says is going to wipe away every tear? Every one of our tears when we get to heaven? It's going to be Jesus himself. It's going to be the, the, the one who's going to wipe away every tear. It'll be the same hands that touched sick people and made them well. The same hands that were nail-pierced for our transgressions. They're going to wipe away every tear from every cheek. And what a day that will be. Right after you die, depending on your relationship with Jesus, you'll either be filled with tremendous gratitude or enormous regret. I want to get to the third point. So we said, we said three realities are going to be true after we die. First of all, we're going to be wide awake and we're going to be fully conscious. Second, we're either going to have tremendous gratitude or enormous regret. And third, we're going to be able to reflect back on our life here on earth and we're going to be able to reflect with crystal clarity, right? What we're going to be able to see and realize sometimes with a lot of pain what really mattered most during our lifetime. If someone were to ask you, at, you know, if you got to the point where you're about ready to die and they said, okay, Jim, what do you think you'll regret most about your life here on earth? You know, something that you either should have happened that didn't happen or whatever. What would you regret the most about your life here on earth? And these are some of the top answers. Number one, not being on good terms with my friends or my family or my loved ones when I died. I left some broken relationships that were unreconciled, and that leaves people with a lot of regrets. What are some of the other regrets? Not forgiving, not forgiving somebody when I should have. Another regret, the years I wasted before coming to active faith in Jesus Christ. Another regret, the things I should have done but I didn't do, or the things I should not have done, and yet I did them anyway. Here's what I know about right after we die. We're either going to have crystal clarity and we're going to know in that moment what really mattered the most. Now look in, the, look in verse 27 and 28 because the story, if you think, wow, this is kind of a sad story. It's kind of a downer. <laughs> it is a downer and it's a downer on purpose meant to warn us because look what this man says who's now in Hades, he's now in torment, he now realizes there's no changing the state for himself, but all of a sudden this guy becomes concerned about other people. Look what he says. He says, then I beg you, I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
You know, isn't that amazing? There's an, all of a sudden there's this urgency. There's a pleading in his voice. For the first time in the story, this, this guy who used to be rich here on earth and didn't show any interest in God, now he's showing interest in somebody besides himself. I'm really concerned about my family now. The reality of experienced uh, the reality of experiencing hell for himself turned this ex-non-believer, turns him now into an evangelist. And he says, hey, somebody's got to go tell my brothers that hell is real. And real people go there. I should know. Pull out all the stops, Abraham. Send Lazarus. Do whatever has to be done to keep my brothers from going to this place. I don't know about you, but I get to this part of the story, it cuts me pretty deeply. Because there is somebody that says, I would do anything not to have people I care about go to the place that I am right now. In life, he didn't care about anybody but himself. But after he dies, he has crystal clarity about, matters, about what matters most. And guess what? It wasn't his money. It wasn't his cars or his jet or his homes or his, all his bling and his stuff. What really mattered the most and what he realizes too late was what mattered most was people. And you know why? Because people are the only thing that lasts forever. People are the only thing that are going to be on this side of the afterlife and also on the other side. And here's the really big regret that's probably my greatest fear, probably greatest for me as a pastor, is that there'll be too many on the other side, too many people that heard the good news of Jesus and did not respond to it. Too many people who ignored the activity of God in their life. Too many people whom God was trying to get their attention and they said later or not now or I don't care or I don't want anything to do with you. And then they get to the other side and they said, why? Why didn't I respond to the work of Jesus in my life while I still had the opportunity? Because right after you and I die, we're going to have crystal clarity on every spiritual opportunity that came our way in life. So you may be even reflecting at, the, at that moment right after you die and you have crystal clarity and you remember what matters most, you might even have the regret of the memory of today because today you could reflect on the opportunity you had to put your trust in Jesus and yet you either delayed it or you denied it or you put it in the back of your mind, or you said, I don't want to deal with that right now. I just want to live my life. Because there will come a time, according to this story, when it will be too late, and you won't be able to make, uh, have an opportunity to make one more decision. Remember what I told you earlier. In Hebrews, it says, just as man is destined to die one time, once, and after that to face judgment, that, if that is true, then one day we will all come before Almighty God in judgment. And when that happens, I believe that God is going to ask us two questions. If you're Christians and you follow Jesus, God is going to ask you two questions. If you're not a Christian and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, God is just going to ask you one question. The one question God is going to ask you is, number one, what did you do with my son Jesus? Did you follow him? Did you accept him? Did you believe in him? Did you ignore him? Did you put him first place in your life? Did you put him on the back burner saying, I'll get to him later and now it's too late? What did you do with my son Jesus? 
And the second question for those of us who follow Jesus is, what did you do with the gifts and the talents that I gave you? Because God gave us resources. He gave us gifts and talents. And he says, use these. Use what I've given you to build and advance the kingdom of God until I return. So what did you and I do with the gifts and talents I gave you? The beauty of today is if you go down to Growth Track and have a nice lunch with us and sit there and listen, you're going to discover uh, in your own life, in your own personality, in your gifts and your temperament, how God has gifted you for service in his kingdom. So keep that invitation in mind. That's the ultimate final examination, friends. The, these are two questions you need and want to know the answers this side of heaven. You don't want to wait until it's too late. Look what John says. Look, look what John the Apostle says. He actually, when th this is like what made me so sad to the Muslim imam that I was talking to at California State University that one afternoon after he gave the presentation when I asked him if he had the assurance, if he had the peace that as a good Muslim, as a faithful Muslim, did you have the peace that you're going to go to heaven and, and be in paradise when you die? And he said, no, I don't have that peace. I don't have the assurance because I don't know how Allah is going to judge me. You contrast that with what God gives us in his word. He says, look, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. This life is in his son. Whoever has the Son, do you have Jesus? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I don't know how much clearer God can make it, you know? Are we talking English here? I mean, this is like, this is crystal clear. And then John says, I want you, Christ, I want you Christ followers to be at peace. I don't want you to be thinking, heaven or hell? Am I in the kingdom? Am I out of the kingdom? Is it depending on me and how I perform this day? Or does it have more to do with my faith in Jesus? And he says it very clearly. He says, I write these things to you. Believe in the name of the Son of God. That's what saves you. It's your faith in Jesus. I'm writing these things to you. Believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. No doubts, no questions, no what ifs. If you put your faith in Jesus and hang on to him, you can know that you have eternal life. Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, if you declare with your mouth, in other words, you got to go public. You got to be, you can't be this closet, just me and God. I'm not talking to anybody. Faith is a very personal thing, not in the Christian theology. In, in Christ theology, we go public with our faith. We say Jesus is Lord. We tell the world. We have to confess it publicly and let the world know. We plant our spiritual flag and let others know where we stand. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's your, with your heart you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. I don't know if you've ever done that yet. If you haven't publicly declared your faith in Christ, I want to give you the chance to do that. And if you want to say, well, in the New Testament, how did these early followers of Jesus, how did they declare their faith in Jesus Christ? Well, you, know what, you want to know how they did it? In the waters of baptism. Because you go to the very first day when the church was born in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, and the Jews who had heard about Jesus, who they had said crucify him, that he really was risen from the dead, and he was their Messiah, and they missed him, and they, they were opposed to the direction of God, and they, they were convicted of that, and they said, brothers, what should we do? How do we get right with God? And Peter says, repent, turn around. 
Change your direction. Come back to God and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the, whole, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so how did they respond? Verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Isn't that an amazing beginning to how, when you say, how did the whole Christian church thing get started anyway? Book of Acts, baby, chapter 2. Chapter 2. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And before we sing a song, I want to have a closing prayer. And during the time of prayer, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to whatever God is calling you to do in life. Whether you're listening online via live stream, whether you're here with us right here in the church assembly today. I want to give you a chance to respond to God and to what he's asking you to do as a result of listening to this story of Jesus about the rich man and Lazarus. Will you pray? And you know, as you reflect on your life even now, the, the Bible says in the book of Psalms, it says, Lord, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It is so much better to stop and pause and reflect and say, where are you in your relationship with God? It is so much better to do that here and now instead of waiting until it's too late on the other side of death and, and your decisions are irreversible. And so I want to ask you, have you ever bowed your knee to Jesus? Have you ever turned to him in humility and faith and say, Lord Jesus, I need your forgiveness. I want you to be my savior. I'm going to, today, I'm going to commit my life to following you. If you want to do that today, right now, then let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to earth to be the savior. Thank you that you said the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And Lord, I'm, I'm one of them. I'm, I'm one of those people that is not in a right relationship with God because of my sin, because of my wrongdoing, because of my attitude. Lord, I'm turning away from whatever direction I was going in life. I'm turning back in faith in you right now. And I'm saying, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. I'm, I want you to be my forgiver. I will be your follower and I want you to lead my life from here on out. And Lord, if as I put my trust in you and you say you want me to confess it publicly, then I'm willing to stand up for you. You went to the cross for me. I'm willing to stand up in this earth among my peers and my family and my friends and my neighbors and work associates. And I'm willing to declare publicly that I'm putting my faith and trust in you. And whether that's verbally, whether that's being baptized, that's, that is up to you to determine your next step. But I'm doing that right now, Lord Jesus, and I thank you for the forgiveness. I thank you that I can know without a shadow of a doubt that I can have the peace and assurance that I have eternal life because I believe in the name of the Son of God. Thank you for the assurance of salvation. Thank you for eternal life. Thank you for belonging in this family of God and being part of your kingdom work that's going to change this world around and reconcile everybody to God. I love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for loving me first. Thank you for telling me this story that has a warning in it so that I wouldn't be on the wrong side when I get to the other side. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.